Hey, good morning, church, and happy Sunday to you. I also want to add my gratitude and say thank you to our youth interns and our children's intern. Thanks for all the work that you guys have done this summer. I'm sorry we didn't get to all get to know you better as a church and spend more time with you, but what you've done for our kids is so much appreciated. And to Michael and Christy, who faithfully lead our Leadership Training for Christ and spend so much time making that a great program for our children and for all the volunteers, thank you. We love you, Michael and Christy. Thank you. Uh, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. I invite you to join me there, and we're going to read a few verses from Romans 9, 10, and 11 this morning. And we're also going to take some reading from Isaiah chapter 35. So if you like to have scriptures marked to turn to in advance, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and Isaiah 35 will be the two places that we'll be looking at today. And there are some wonderful promises of God and some rich truths in these scriptures. So I hope you're ready to get started. Let's go ahead and do that. What is going on in Romans 9, 10, and 11? What is going on in these chapters? We're going to spend the next few weeks in them. These are chapters that are famously difficult. Uh, they talk a lot about election and about predestination. And some have thought that the whole point of chapters 9, 10, and 11 is to set out this theology about how salvation works for individuals that the way you get saved is God sets some people aside for salvation and others for condemnation and that's his good pleasure to do it and that that's what these chapters are all about but that is not what these chapters are all about even though these chapters talk about predestination and foreknowledge the purpose of these chapters is a pastor Paul in this case, a shepherd of the church, writing to a church that's having real problems on the ground. There's infighting and there's stress and there's tension, just like there uh, can be in our churches and in our homes today, because anytime you bring two or three people together, you can have at least five or six different opinions on how things ought to be done. In fact, by myself, I can often have three or four opinions on how something ought to be done. And, and not get anything done for uncertainty. So who is Paul writing to? And what is their situation? And how is Paul feeling as he writes this letter? Uh, great questions, let's talk about it for a second. Paul's writing to a mixed church, a mixed ethnicity church in Rome, probably actually multiple house churches, maybe six or eight of them. And these churches have Jews and Gentiles both within them. So there is ethnic tension. You might call it racial tension, uh, but ethnic tension is probably a good way of describing it. They eat different foods, they have different traditions and customs, and especially when it comes to religious worship and how to honor the one true God and his son Jesus. There's some differences here, like the Jews have a circumcision and they have a history of not eating pork and the Gentiles would not be circumcised and would eat pork. And there's other things in their cultures that, that might become uh, issues of confrontation and, and uh, of history and value and culture and worldview and who we are as a people, but there's a lot of tension here for them. Now what Paul is going to do in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is pivot towards a certain group in the room. I'm convinced that in Romans 7 and 8, Paul has in mind the Jews in the house church as he's speaking, as he's writing. Now this letter would have been delivered by a courier who would have read it to the church upon arrival. 
Chapter 16 says that Phoebe was the one who was entrusted with the letter, so we believe she was the courier and probably was the first one to read it to the house churches upon arrival. So imagine Phoebe arriving at the house churches in Rome in the first century, standing up to read the letter that Paul had entrusted to her, and while she's reading chapters 7 and 8, and maybe pausing to explain when there's a question or maybe to gesture in a certain way that Paul has indicated or emphasize words that he wanted pointed out, she's spending some time looking at the Jewish half of the room while she's reading those chapters. Now, why would we think that these chapters are written specifically towards the Jews in the room? Well, good question again. Chapter 7, Paul makes this comment. He says, don't you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. And then he proceeds to describe in chapter 7, the frustration of trying to do what's right and always messing up and doing what's wrong and how hopeless it seems to be to try to live the life you want to live and please God. And then after all that frustration in chapter 8, he says, but thanks be to God, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he begins to describe this wonderful truth that in Jesus Christ, we've been given his righteousness so that we're found right in the sight of God, even though we struggle to do what's right and we so often make mistakes. While he is talking about those things, it seems like he's talking through Phoebe or whoever reads the letter to the Jews in the room that are familiar with the idea that we try to keep this difficult law and we fail and it's so hard to, to do what's right and, and to be right and they needed the relief of the truth of Jesus, giving them the mercy of a good status with God, giving them the mercy of righteousness. So to the Jews in the room, what a relief. And then of course in chapter eight, and we talked about this last week, there is just such beautiful language about Jesus Christ and about his love for us and how nothing can separate us from his love. So it's like after dealing with the problem, which is the frustration of trying to do what's right, Paul then leads them through mercy, which is Jesus' gift, and to praise, doxology, praising God, which is saying, thank God for his great love, We're, that we can't be separated from him, that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. Everybody's ready to stand in the church and to cheer as Phoebe gets to that part of the letter. The Jews on this side of the room, they're probably ready to stand up, just clap. Ooh, Jesus, you know, he's given us such great mercy. Wow, it's a, it's a beautiful part of the Bible. And I said last week, a lot of people have their favorite Bible verse in chapter eight. Now, I can't say that I've ever had anybody tell me that their favorite Bible verse was in chapter nine, because this is how chapter nine starts. Chapter nine, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That's a mouthful. That's just Paul saying what I'm about to say is true. But it's like he makes this like an oath. And we think, well, Jesus said, you know, don't swear on anything. Yeah, it seems like what Paul is doing here is doubling or even tripling down and saying, church, this matters to me. And I'm telling you the real contents of my heart right now. I'm going to open my heart to you. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And what is Paul's truth from the heart, his experience that he wants to share. Well, it's quite sad. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul, are you making an overstatement? 
Is this like when you walk through the kitchen and you stub your toe on the kid's toy, that, the Lego that was left out, you step on it and you make a big deal? You just cry and wail and oh, you know. No, right? This is Paul opening up his heart and saying, there is legacy on the line. The future of a people group is on the line. I have anguish in my heart for what's happening to my relatives, to my people, to the Israelites. This is not Paul having a frustrating moment and overselling it. This is Paul's mission, his life, what he cares about, his worldview is on the line. Now, why would, why would Paul do this? I'm going to give you two reasons. Okay, two reasons that I think Paul makes this shift from the glory of chapter 8 to unceasing anguish in chapter 9. Okay? And the first reason is this. Paul is going to share his experience so that the Roman church will identify with him. Okay, Paul is sharing his experience of anguish so the Roman church will identify with him. And then as a corollary, even further in the background would be you and me in the churches in our day. And we identify with Paul because he shares his heart with us. So Paul, this is the first reason Paul shares his heart like this. So the Roman church would identify with him. And so that churches later who read this letter would identify with him. How does that work? Well, the church in Rome is suffering, not, not to make it too much, not to say that they're being persecuted. It looks like they're suffering internally from the Jewish ethnicity people and the Roman Gentile ethnicity people struggling to get along, like I've just started describing earlier for you. So the break is so big and the stress is so tangible and the frustration is so real that they're suffering. They're in anguish. They are brothers and sisters in Christ and they're having trouble getting along because they're on opposite sides of some aisles, of some issues, and they can't seem to, 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 get, to figure out how to love each other and how to have a relationship with each other when they disagree on these very important issues that they sense are issues of their identity and their future and their worldview and their way of life. So then further in the background is us, churches in, in the modern world or in whatever time in history. Here we are, and we're sitting here in, July, in August now. I'm preaching this in July on Thursday. You're getting it on Sunday in August. Here we are in July, August of 2020, and it's been a hard year, and I don't need to enumerate the reasons again. You all know the reasons. It's been a hard year. Life is hard. And there are a lot of different opinions about what should happen next. And Christians, I see it every day on Facebook, and it happens here at the church in conversations too. Christians are in some sorrow and some anguish. And why is that? Because um, for some, there are people in the church that are on the opposite side of the aisle from them that think things should be done a different way when it comes to medicine or when it comes to politics or when it comes to schools, or when it comes to uh, the economy. There are genuinely different opinions that are held by genuinely good people and genuinely God-loving people who see things different ways. But it leads to frustration and some anguish. Now, hopefully, at the moment, this isn't too acute. Like, I'm not aware of having any unceasing anguish between myself and any of you, for instance. 
But you can see that it's happening in our world, and it is happening in our churches, and there are times when it becomes stronger uh, and, and really acute and really difficult. So here's, this is the first reason why Paul makes the pivot, is he's going to open his heart so that the church in Rome and churches down through the ages, when they're experiencing that it's hard to get along and love each other, that they'll have these words from Paul to identify with. Okay? Here's, here's a truth that goes along with that. And then I'll give you the second reason Paul makes the pivot. Any Sunday that we're together, there is somebody present whose heart is broken. Any Sunday that we're together, any Wednesday night, any uh, Bible camp session, any camp quest session, any time that we gather for a meal, there is somebody present who has a broken heart. There's a lot of hurting around. And it's not hitting everybody at the same times, but it hits everybody at some time. And there's always somebody here with a broken heart. Well, today, Paul sits with you. If you're the one with a broken heart today, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He was in the middle of it. And you know what? Chapter 8 and chapter 9 were not written weeks apart. Most likely, they were written moments apart. Paul who is suffering, this great suffering, can still write chapter 8 and say, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, I'm hurting. Same man, same pen, same breath, same afternoon, sitting with his friends, writing this letter out to send to his other friends at Rome. At the same moment, such great hope and such great pain. If you're the one here this morning or at home whose heart is breaking, remember that you're not separated from God's love and Paul is sitting with you and we're sitting with you. It's okay to worship and to have a broken heart at the same time. It doesn't feel great, but you don't have to fake it. Paul can say, I trust Jesus, but I'm hurting. And you're welcome here, however your heart is today. Now, what, what is the second reason that Paul makes this pivot? Let's move to that. Uh, in chapter 7 and 8, Paul seems to be talking to the Jews in the room. So here he makes the pivot, and he's going to talk to the Gentiles in the room. Okay, so just as a refresher, just as a review, in Romans chapter 7, when Paul is describing how hard it is to follow the law and to get righteousness and to be right with God, he says, I am speaking to those who know the law. In other words, to Jews. Chapter 7 and 8, he seems to be talking to the Jews. What is he going to do in 9, 10, and 11? Well, he's going to pivot and he's going to talk about the Jews. So in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's going to talk about the Jews. Who's he talking to then? He's talking to the Gentiles in the room. So here comes Phoebe. She's presenting the letter uh, at the house church or whatever. She's been looking at these people. They've gotten to the moment, celebration, they celebrate Jesus, nothing can separate us from his love, and then pivot. And probably we could imagine at this point, Phoebe then, or whoever was reading the letter on that day, takes the letter and her disposition changes and she looks at the people on the other side of the room and she says, my heart is breaking. And she's reading Paul's words, my heart is breaking. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Now there would be a gasp, a slow gasp from both sides of the room. Paul could wish that he was accursed. 
Paul only uses this, this word accursed whenever he's talking about people who are cut off from Christ. When he writes the, the letter to the Gentiles, uh, excuse me, to the Galatians, <laughs> who are Gentiles in Galatia, who are going to receive Jewish circumcision and maybe be pressured into it, thinking they need to add something to Jesus Christ. He says, if anybody preaches a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, even if it comes from angels, let him be accursed. This is not a light-hearted word for Paul. He says, I could wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, they are the Israelites. So what has happened here is a pivot moment. Paul's letter has built the Jewish believers up. And now he pivots and he turns to the Gentiles and he is going to build them up. He's going to build the Romans up. He says, do you know how much I love the Israelites? My heart is in anguish for the ones who haven't accepted Jesus. These here in the room, they've accepted Jesus. Okay? But there are many Jews that have not accepted him and they are not the enemies. They're not right, but they're not the enemies. They're wrong about Jesus, but they're not the enemies. They might be enemies according to the gospel. This is what he'll say in chapter 11, verse 28. But they're not your enemies. Let me read from chapters 10, verse 1, and chapters 11, verse 28. Romans 10, 1, Paul will say, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, the Israelites, that they might be saved. Paul's like, I am praying for them. Just like Jesus the Lord taught us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Paul's like, I love them. He is one of them who's come to know Jesus, but he loves them. Chapter 11, verse 28, Paul will say, as it regards the gospel, they're enemies of yours. See, they haven't accepted Jesus. The gospel is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. They have not accepted that. As regards the gospel, they're your enemies. But as regards election, they're loved for the sake of the forefathers. God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. Wow. So Paul can say at the same time, that the person on the other side of the aisle is your enemy in regards to this issue, but not your enemy overall, Paul can say that person on the other side of the aisle disagrees with you on this important matter, and in regards to that matter, they're an enemy, but in regards to how God loves them, they're not an enemy, and this is about the gospel. What do you think Paul would then say to the Roman and Jewish Christians in the room in their church about the issues that are keeping them separate that are, that, about their aisles, he would say, I know you don't agree about that particular issue, but you are not enemies. God loves you all. He's trying to work to bring you all together. What do you think Paul would say to our churches in 2020 and to Christians about how we talk about people that we disagree with and how we approach issues that we don't see eye to eye on? And it doesn't even matter if they're on the same side of the gospel as us. Paul's attitude, his heart for people, is that I would rather lose out on my salvation if I could bring them in. And this is very characteristic of how Paul feels for his churches and for his people. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says something very similar. He has anxiety all the time for the churches. He's thinking about them. He cares about them. And I just wonder if my thinking is ever that noble, if I am ever that disinterested in self and interested in others. Do I actually put on the mind of Christ like Paul writes in Philippians 2, 
where I think of others as more important than myself and I esteem them above myself. You know, uh, there are some issues going on in our country right now where that has not been the way that I think about the people on the other side of the issue. And so I need to repent and I need to ask for God's forgiveness that I could learn to love people on the other side of my issues, of our issues, the way Paul loves people on the other side of the gospel. He says, in relation to the gospel, they might be your enemies, but as far as God's love, no, they're not your enemies. Now what this does for the people in the room in Romans is fantastic. And it's about pastoring a church. It's about helping these people in the church love and accept each other. There is theology in chapter 9, 10, and 11. There is language about foreknowledge and predestination. But this is about people groups, not about individuals, who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. This is about the destiny of nations and the destiny of peoples and of cultures and of ethnicities far more than it's about uh, God picking through individuals and saying you're saved and you're not saved. That's not what these scriptures teach. What they teach is they teach a church how to love each other in spite of almost irreconcilable differences. And they have the power to do it again today. So this is Paul's heart. Paul's heart is, I'm in anguish. I could wish that I was cut off and accursed for them. And then he, he builds them up a little bit. He's looking at the Gentiles in the room, but he says, do you want to know some great things about Israelites, even the ones that have rejected Jesus? He says, to them belong the adoption. The first time God ever called someone his son was when he saved the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He said, out of Egypt I will call my son. To, their, to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's their people. And then he makes a remarkable statement. He says, and from those patriarchs, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. We wouldn't have the Messiah if it wasn't for Israel. We wouldn't have the Savior if it wasn't for those patriarchs. He's looking at the Gentiles in the room. Your Savior that you love and that you sing about, you only have him thanks to them. This is the work of a reconciler. This is the work of a man who's listening to both sides of the aisle and helping them to see what benefit they have from the other and from loving the other. From them comes the Messiah according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And there's that little tiny doxology right now. Blessed be God forever. Amen. A beautiful little word. So in this one moment, the room, the church, the house church, has gone from elation in chapter 8 to silence. And the reader has gone from looking at the Jews over here to looking at the Gentiles over here. And the room has become very sobered as Paul opens his heart and says, my heart is breaking. And I bet when Phoebe reads those lines, she stops for emphasis and allows people to feel it. My heart is breaking. And then Paul begins to explain why do they need each other. And for the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, Paul will teach these people 
that every people group on earth has blown it. The Israelites blew it. The Gentiles blew it. Chapter 11, verse 28, 29, 30, 31, reads like this. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they're loved on the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, he's looking at the Gentiles still, you were disobedient to God, worshiping pagan gods, offering wine and meat to them, carousing, sleeping around with whoever you wanted. You were way outside the kingdom of God. And they go, we remember, we know, we know. You've now received mercy because of their disobedience. He's talking about the Jewish nation that rejected Christ. Because they rejected the Messiah, so you got welcomed in. You received mercy. And, and these Gentiles now, they've got to think. They've got to think, you know, what Paul's saying is we really owe them some gratitude. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, for them. So we can't write them off. We can't cut them out. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. That's the way younger people have to learn to treat older Christians. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. That's the way that, that older Christians need to think about younger Christians who begin to take up the work in the church and try to carry uh, the service and the weight of work that used to be done by the generations before is we wouldn't be able to keep doing this if it wasn't for their youthful energy. This is how old and young can learn to love each other. We wouldn't be here without them having established this. And we wouldn't be here without them carrying it on. You know, He looks at them and he says, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the mercy God showed you because of them. And then he says this, they too have now been disobedient so that by the mercy shown to you, they can also receive mercy. For God, and this is, I think, the pinnacle of this whole section, God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Now, that goes way deep into Romans, but from chapter 1 until now, Paul has been making an argument that everybody sins. And this will sound familiar to you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Right? Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Paul has been making this argument that every side of the aisle is broken. Every side of the aisle has broken the heart of God. And yet God has shown mercy to the Gentiles so that the Jews will also be jealous and want Christ and want to be in God's mercy. And so God's genius plan is that somehow he's trying to show mercy to the whole world. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not about who God is excluding. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, when talked about about predestination, are often confused for being about who is God keeping out. That is not what these chapters are about. These chapters are about the expansive mercy of God, the ever-widening family of God, the never-ending love of God. And so, even though we haven't read all of 9, 10, and 11 today, this is the section that would be spoken at the Gentile Christians. And at the end of that section, there's another little doxology. It's almost as good as chapter 8. And I'm going to read it right now. We're going to read it again in two weeks, but for a different reason, but I'm going to read it again right now. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul's just like, you all were disobedient. You all messed up. Every side of the aisle was wrong. 
this is, this is just genius by Paul. Paul goes, you know what? None of the parties will save you. <laughs> not the Jewish party, not the Roman party. None of the parties will save you. None of the sides will save you. They're all messed up. He goes, oh, the depth and riches of God's knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul ends in this eruption of praise again. And now the Gentiles are standing up. Now they're going, oh, Jesus is great. You know, what a plan. He's brought us in and now he wants to give mercy to the Jews too. He, he's trying to save everybody. And church, this is a transforming way of looking at Scripture. Because when we see the people around us that we might be tempted to think are ruining the world, well, there's all kinds of names we, we sling around. I'm not even going to use any of the names. I don't even want to acknowledge Spiritually, I don't even want to acknowledge the names and the categories and the slurs and the slogans that are used in America right now to try to denigrate and dehumanize other groups of people. I don't even want to give them a spiritual authority. I just want to say all of them are broken. and All of us need Jesus Christ and His mercy. And all of us have work to do to extend that mercy to people on the other side of the aisle, who are not enemies, they're humans that God loves. And they may know the gospel or they may not, but God has promises for everyone. He makes his rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know what that means? God loves the people on the other side of the aisle. God causes the new day to come up and the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you know what that means? God has given some of his heart and some commitment to all people because he loves them, because he loves them. And I don't know for sure um, what was going on in Paul and his day when he wrote Romans 9, but I have a clue, just a little clue of what he might have been praying that day, because he was probably writing this document and thinking about these loved Jews and these loved Romans and how are they going to get along in church, and he's writing the letter, and I have a feeling he was reading Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is this beautiful poem, and this is where I'll, I'll end today, uh, from the prophet Isaiah, of a vision of when the desert will become a beautiful garden, and when the impassable desert wastelands will become like a smooth and safe highway for people to get back to Jerusalem and get back to worshiping God. Okay, so it's a poem with a, a few artistic images in it. And I'd like to read just the end of the poem. I hope you'll read all of it, maybe. Isaiah 35, it's not long, it's 10 verses, and it's beautiful. You can sit with this all morning with a cup of coffee and just soak in God's promises. But let me read the last three verses, 8, 9, and 10. A highway shall be there in the wilderness. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they'll sh they shall not go astray. There's a, there's a little echo of what Paul says in Romans in that right there. People can be enemies of yours for one reason or another and not completely out of the plan of God. Even the fools that walk on this road will not go astray in this highway of holiness. 
No lion shall be there, so it's safe. Nor shall there be any ravenous beast that will come up on it, so you're not going to get torn to pieces. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom to the Lord shall return, and they'll come to Zion. That's the poetic name for Jerusalem, where the temple is at. Singing, everlasting joy shall be on their heads. A beautiful picture of restoration. And they shall obtain gladness and joy. And here's the key. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All the sorrow and the sighing that we feel. All the moaning about the future of our nation. All of the wondering, all the tears, all the worry, all the fear. I've seen church members this week have written to me. They're afraid of what's happening for one reason or another in our country. There's people on both sides of every issue that are afraid. Sighing and frustrated. And that poem says that those negative experiences, eventually they will go away in the kingdom of God, in the redeemed kingdom of God. Well, in the Hebrew poem, there's just a one word there for the sorrow. There's just one word there. But in the Greek Septuagint, there are two words. The translator seemed to need to use two words in order to get the idea across. And right here in Romans chapter 9, when Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, he uses the same two words. He uses the same two words that show up in the Greek Septuagint translation, the Greek Old Testament version of Isaiah 35 for the word sorrow. And it's as if it's a little clue or a little insight into Paul's prayer life that day. Because what he uses is a very exclusive little Bible phrase that came to him because he read the scriptures regularly. He was a Bible guy and he knew Bible words and he lived by Bible promises and Holy Spirit given promises. And I have this picture in my mind that Paul wrote Romans 8 maybe one evening and finished it up with all his friends around, Phoebe's in the room and the other uh, amanuenses that would write these things out for him and his, his co-workers and friends are in the room. He's writing Romans 8. He's thinking about the church in Rome and the message they need. He finishes Romans 8. Everybody in the room is just like, this is so, this letter is good. And Paul goes to bed and he's like, but it doesn't show my whole heart. I'm hurting right now. I'm hurting for the dissension in the church. I'm hurting for the brokenness. And that morning, maybe Paul is reading Isaiah 35, meditating on the promises of God, thinking, how can I get this through to the church that needs to see this vision of the desert become a garden and a highway? And he sits down and he writes these words out to the church. He bears his heart to them and he cannot help but speak the word of Scripture, speak those little words that he got from Isaiah 35 because he has saturated and filled himself with Scripture before he goes into the argument before he encounters the people who are fractured, before he sits down and tries to reconcile, he has filled himself with the promises of Scripture. I don't know that that's what happened, but I think it might have happened. I think it's very reasonable. But that's the way Paul went about writing his letters and living his life. Let's be the same as Paul, filling ourselves with the promises of Scripture and the hope of God and the hope in Jesus Christ, who is God forever praised. Amen. Let us fill our hearts with those promises so that when we encounter people who think differently than us and we disagree with them, we will remember, my heart is for you. 
My heart is that you would be saved. I would cut myself off if only it could bring you in. I am not here to burn you down. I am burning to bring you in to love and reconciliation. And I will not give up on you. I will not vilify you. I will not call you names. I will not call you out in false, pretentious, and arrogant ways. I will love you and fight for you and have a rugged love because I was brought in by mercy too. Let that be our story, church. Go with the grace of God. Love you. Goodbye.